Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this explainer episode of Dan Snow's History Hit. It's April 1943, 80 years ago this month. A detachment of Wehrmacht soldiers, soldiers from the German army, are sweeping through the Katyn forest near the occupied city of Smolensk in the Soviet Union. The invasion of Russia is now going badly for the Germans. The defeat at Stalingrad came just a few months earlier. The war-weary soldiers are scanning the trees around them anxiously for any signs of the partisan enemy. All they can hear is the creak of tall pine trees, the noise of the wind in the branches, and the tweeting of birdsong. They exchange hushed whispers, and they get nervous as their feet crack twigs on the ground or make noises in the undergrowth. At one point, the soldiers come across a clearing where the earth has been disturbed. The low vegetation that carpets the forest floor has been torn out, swept aside. There's an eerie stillness hanging over the place. Something has happened here. Something isn't right. As they approach, rifles couched at the ready, they can make out the outline of a long ditch, even though it's been obscured by a couple of years' exposure to the elements. These battle-hardened soldiers who've seen the awful face of war and genocide in the Soviet Union know a mass grave when they see one. Not wanting to linger long at this sinister spot, they hurry to get word back to their superior officers. That was 80 years ago this month, and these men were the first to come across evidence of what's since become known as the Katyn Massacre, a series of mass executions perpetrated by the Soviets in April and May of 1940 in and around the Katyn Forest in the Soviet Union. It was sanctioned by Stalin, the most senior members of his government in the Politburo, and it was carried out by the Soviet secret police, the NKVD. The victims, Polish officers and intelligentsia. They killed over 22,000 of them who had been taken prisoner after Soviet forces had occupied Eastern Poland. The Katyn massacre confirmed the opposition of the Polish government in exile to Stalin's regime. It fomented divisions between the Allied powers. It's still an extremely charged topic for Russia and Poland. It's a source of tension between them to this day. So why did the Soviets commit such a brutal war crime? What effect did it have on the great Allied alliance of the Second World War? And what parallels can we draw from the present day as Russia continues its invasion of yet another one of its neighbours, this time Ukraine, and we understand, commits further war crimes. Joining us to answer these questions, I'm very pleased to say, is the living legend Anne Applebaum, a Polish-American journalist and historian specialising in the history of communism in Central and Eastern Europe, one of the most high-profile, outspoken and politically engaged historians 
in the world at this time. We're really grateful to her for coming on the podcast and her insights are going to help us get to the bottom of this very complicated piece of history. Let's get into it. Hitler invaded Poland in September 1939, just one week after the Nazis and the Soviets, unlikely allies, signed a non-aggression treaty known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. This bizarre partnership between two ideologically opposed powers was really just a marriage of convenience. In the short term, both of them had more to gain from cooperation than from confrontation. Their plan was to conquer and partition Eastern Europe between them. Simple as that. Poland would be the first and major target. On the 1st of September, the Germans advanced from the north, west and southern borders of Poland, each spearhead basically heading for the capital, Warsaw. Over 2,000 tanks, supported by 900 bombers, protected by 400 fighter planes, and one and a half million men streamed into Poland in a massive series of assaults that enveloped and destroyed Polish defenders. They had tactical, they had numerical advantages over the defending Poles, who were quickly overwhelmed. Massive German air superiority was decisive as well. Polish communications and supply lines were disrupted and major cities heavily bombed. The Poles fought incredibly bravely, quite effectively. There were some short-term victories, as you'll know if you listen to the podcast I recorded with Roger Morehouse a couple of years ago all about this. Go and look that one up in the feed. But they were facing enormous odds. By the 12th of September, nearly all of Western Poland had fallen. Warsaw, this capital city, was holding out. The Polish plan was to retreat, try and keep their coherence, and move to a slice of land called the Romanian Bridgehead, which was a kind of last-ditch attempt to hold out in case the Allies got their act together, France and Britain, and were able to send reinforcements. However, this plan, desperate as it was, was completely thrown in disarray when on the 17th of September, the Red Army crossed into Poland from the east. The sudden, overwhelming influx of something like 800,000 soldiers destroyed any remaining hope of a Polish victory. And it was at this time that the Polish government saw the writing on the wall, ordered an emergency evacuation and headed south to neutral Romania and Hungary before making their way to France and ultimately setting up shop in London. While Britain and France had stayed true to their words and declared war on Germany on the 3rd of September, their support was inconsequential on the battlefield. After just a month, the whole of Poland had been captured. The Nazis and Soviets had split the country into two spheres of influence, divided up by the Bug River. Both sides clamped down on what they saw as dissenters. Nazi-controlled Western Poland would become the site of many of the largest and most notorious extermination camps, specifically built to realise the, quote, final solution to the Jewish question. Names like Auschwitz-Birkenau, Treblinka, Belzec are burned into our collective memory. And Hitler wanted to eliminate Poland's three and a half million Jews. There's no doubt this was his aim from the start. But he also needed to thoroughly subjugate the country, stamp out Polish nationalism. 
And to that end, he ordered the arrest, the mass murder of Polish officers, political opponents, and any citizens, prominent citizens who threatened his regime in any way. Now, this plan would eventually spread far beyond Poland. It was implemented across, to varying degrees, Nazi-occupied countries in Eastern Europe. There was genocide, ethnic cleansing on a gigantic scale. For those not killed, they could look forward to a future of forced labour. Something like nearly 3 million Polish citizens were deported to Germany as forced labourers during the Second World War. Over in the east of Poland in 1939, now under Stalin's guardianship, things really weren't much better. Conquering Soviet soldiers sort of ran rampage. They looted their way through Poland. They killed thousands. They committed huge numbers of sexual assaults. When told about this rampant bloodshedding, Stalin said, if there is no ill will, they can be pardoned. So it's basically carte blanche to behave however they wanted. While the Nazis tried to justify their policies with the warped theory of racial supremacy, the Soviets relied on ideology. They implemented a campaign of Sovietization, so an attempt to make the Poles adopt the way of life, the mentality, the culture of the Soviet Union. As a first step, millions of citizens were forcibly made Soviet subjects, and there were show elections conducted by the security services, the NKVD. The Soviets also inflamed ethnic tension in the country. Minority groups were incited to commit acts of violence against Poles, whom they portrayed as citizens of an exploitative capitalist state. They encouraged mob killings, community justice, and it's not really known how many people died as a result of this Soviet-inspired terror, but it was huge numbers of people. Then came persecution. In order to prevent any kind of resistance movement from forming, there were waves of arrests, there were summary executions. Again, Polish military officers were targeted. Police, the priests, the intellectuals, the elite of society. They wanted to decapitate Polish society. And because it was the contention of the Soviets, they'd never recognised the Polish state as legitimate. Captured Polish soldiers were treated as rebels rather than prisoners of war, making their treatment worse than it might otherwise have been. Anyone connected with the pre-war Polish state was deemed a subversive who'd committed a crime against revolution. Hundreds of thousands of these people were arrested, they were imprisoned, many deported to Siberia and other remote parts of the USSR, and many of them would be dead within a few years. Here's Anne Applebaum to shed some light on the initial stages of the Soviet occupation and the historic relationship between Russia and Poland. And thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. We're so used to Russians now demeaning the Ukrainian nationality itself, denying their kind of personhood as distinct from Russianness. Is there an element of that going on with Russia's relationship with Poland as well, which for many generations was incorporated into the Russian Empire? It's a good question. It's a little bit more nuanced. I'm sitting in Warsaw, a few hundred yards away from one of the most prominent monuments in the city, and it's the monument to the Polish conquest of Moscow, 17th century. So there is a long history going back to the Middle Ages of competition and conflict between Poland, or as it was then, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it was a kind of pre-modern empire, and Muscovy. And there have been different people in charge at different times. It's true that the Russian conquest of Poland in the 18th century, the division of Poland between Russia, Austro-Hungary, and Prussia, 
is really what made Russia into a European empire. It gave it its European borders and gave it much more influence in the West. There's a feeling in Russia that those Poles are kind of our natural subordinates, not so much that they're the same people. It's not quite the same emotion that they have about the Ukrainians, but there's competition going back many centuries. You talked there about uh, the conquest of the 18th century. Well, after enduring the Russian Revolution, uh, during the Russian Civil War, the Russians had again attempt to conquer Poland. And then we get to 1939. Everyone talks about Hitler's great invasion of Poland that starts the Second World War in Europe. Remind me what just happened a couple of weeks later. Yes. So on the 17th of September, the Soviet Union also invaded Poland. So Germany had invaded from the West on September the 1st, and then the Soviet Union invaded 17 days later from the East. And in effect, this was a new partition of Poland. Uh, Poland had been broken up by great powers in the 18th century, put back together after World War I. And this was a new partition. It had been agreed to secretly in a secret pact between Stalin and Hitler. And it was meant to erase Poland from the map once again. This anniversary that we're talking about now, it shows that that erasure from the map was more than just physical moving lines on the atlas. Tell me about what the Soviets did when they entered Poland. How did they go about trying to erase Poland from that map? It's actually a great question because there are a lot of parallels to what they did in eastern Poland as well as the Baltic states in 1939 and in the first part of the war. And then again in 1945, after the war, there are many parallels with what they're doing in Ukraine today. When they invaded what was then Eastern Poland, their initial effort was to destroy elites, attack mayors, chiefs of police, intellectuals, lawyers, anybody who had a leading role in society was liable to be arrested. Any of them were liable to be deported to Siberia. The idea was to kind of cut off the sort of top layer of society as they defined it. And in some cases, they actually arrived with lists of names. So they had names of people who they were looking for when they entered what were then Polish cities. And the Canton Massacre was in a certain sense an extension of that same idea. The people who were massacred were reserve officers. That meant that they were people from many different walks of life. They were doctors, they were lawyers, they were senior figures in society. And by murdering them, Stalin was trying to eliminate the Polish elite, the part of the society that he believed carried or dictated the national idea. It was at this time that the Katyn massacre took place. The NKVD assumed responsibility for just over 300,000 Polish prisoners of war that had been captured by the Red Army. They had set up an extensive network of camps with abysmal living conditions to house them. To get a sense of the hardship that they were living under, of 12,000 Poles sent to labour for the Dolstroy organisation that was responsible for road construction, gold mining in the Russian Far East, only 583 survived to be released in 1942. On the 5th of March 1940, the fateful order was issued. The infamous head of the NKVD, Lavrenti Beria, was sanctioned in writing by Stalin and five other key members of the Soviet Politburo to execute over 22,000 Polish, as they described, nationalists and counter-revolutionaries. The goal was simply to remove Poland's most effective, dynamic officers in case they should ever somehow reform their military. Prisoners of war, who until this point assumed they'd been eventually released, 
unknowingly underwent interrogations that decide whether they were to live or die. Those who demonstrated resistance to a pro-Soviet mentality anyway were declared enemies of the Soviet state and they were marked for execution. What do we mean by the Katyn massacre? Was it one evening in a forest somewhere? Was it a more bureaucratic process of killing these people in different locations simultaneously? What should we think about when we hear that expression? First of all, we should think about mass murder. You know, we usually think of mass murder in terms of concentration camps and gas chambers. This was another form of mass murder. So there were some 22,000 officers and other prisoners of war were being kept in three different camps. After Stalin gave the order, they were taken en masse in the middle of the night and then later throughout the day to these killing sites where they were murdered systematically. So there were lines of soldiers who shot them in the back. They were thrown into pits and they were given mass graves. Um, And it was all done very fast. It was all done in just a few days. And the idea was to do it quickly, to leave no traces, and then to cover up the murder as quickly as possible. It was this happening in various places at the same time? Yes, there were three different sites. So there were three different places where the massacres took place. These are people who had somehow survived the kind of first wave of murders and executions. Have they just been in custody since 1939? Why was the decision made to execute them now? I don't know what the reason for that particular moment was. As I understand it, Stalin simply made the decision that they couldn't live because they were a potential future Polish leadership class. They were the people who would have led a Polish army. They would have led a a Polish society. They would have led a Polish underground. These were the potential leaders. As I said, they were doctors. They were lawyers. They were military officers. They were people who had some status in the reserves. They were people of some social significance. And the idea to eliminate them was to make sure that no powerful idea of Poland could revive. You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit. There's more coming up. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was Amy Dudley pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered? And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me for Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The operation was kept a closely guarded secret. It was carried out across three locations by the NKVD. The killing was systematic and clinical. The details of the executions at one site are provided by Dmitry Tokarev. He was head of the NKVD administration in the Kalinin Oblast. He made this testimony in 1991. He describes how prisoners were ushered in to a dark, dank basement cell, the walls and doorway lined with sandbags to muffle the sound of gunshots. Their greatcoats and shirts had been stripped and would later be used to wrap their bodies. Executioners dressed in long brown leather aprons and elbow-length surgical gloves stood behind them. The scene was reminiscent of an abattoir. Their hands cuffed, they were told to kneel and shot from behind. Their bodies were then dragged into an adjacent courtyard, put into waiting trucks and thrown to mass graves. It's said that German pistols were used as Russian revolvers had too much recoil and the NKVD executioners had complained the task was becoming too painful. Vasily Mikhailovich Blokim, a man with the menacing title of Chief Executioner of the NKVD, killed upwards of 7,000 prisoners himself in just 28 days in April 1940. Handpicked by Stalin to supervise his many mass killings, Blokim would become the most prolific executioner in recorded history. All in all, it's estimated that in this manner they wiped out around half the Polish officer corps, as well as hundreds of government officials, academics, doctors, engineers, journalists, teachers, chaplains. The mass graves were filled in, and in the 1950s the entire enterprise was expunged from the official record by the head of the KGB, Alexander Shelepin, save for a few isolated pieces of evidence that would later come to light. The NKVD and its successor, the KGB, would even end up building recreational areas at some of the burial sites. So, if we speed three years forward from the massacre to the early summer of 1943, the Germans had famously broken the non-aggression pact with the Soviets. They'd launched Operation Barbarossa, a gigantic invasion of the Soviet Union. It began in late June 1941, the largest land invasion in human history. It was the start of years of titanic warfare. It sucked in huge amounts of resources from both sides. The Germans had allocated, for example, a staggering 150 divisions, 3 million men to the initial invasion. 
3,000 tanks, over 2,000 aircraft, 7,000 artillery pieces. And that was reinforced by divisions from Finland and Romania as well. Despite Germany's shattering successes of the opening months of the invasion, the Soviets were able to throw 200 divisions to staunch this German advance. And in all, something like 10 million men would take part in the battles that followed. That invasion stalled at the gates of Moscow in December 1941. It was a crucial turning point in the war. And really, that was the beginning of the end for Nazi Germany. You can hear the full story of Barbarossa if you listen to our episode with Jonathan Dimbleby and the full story of the disaster that overtook the German forces in 1942 by listening to all our Stalingrad material over the last six months. But for now, Anne brings us back to Katyn Forest in April of 1943 as German troops sweep through the area. What happened when the Germans then invaded those lands and uncovered evidence of these crimes? The Germans found the Katyn mass murder, the burial sites, and they immediately held an international excavation. They called in the Red Cross. They trumpeted their find, and they used it as part of their propaganda. They said, you know, look what terrible things the Soviet Union did when it occupied this part of Poland. And, of course, that was one of the elements that made the story difficult from the very beginning, because the Poles were fighting both the Soviet Union and the Germans. Initially, the rest of the Allies were allied with the Soviet Union against the Germans, and they had reasons either to cover up or just not to discuss this problem of the Katyn massacre. But it was an important enough issue that it did lead the then Polish government in exile to break with the Soviet Union. So they never had a diplomatic relationship again from that time until the end of the war. But Germans used it as propaganda. They spoke about it. They talked about it. And of course, the fact was that they were right. It had been the Soviet Union that murdered the officers, not the Germans. For Joseph Goebbels, Nazi chief propagandist, this was a very useful discovery. It was the proof he needed to discredit the Soviet Union and remind the world of the horrors of Bolshevism. So by publicizing this massacre, he wanted to create tension between the big three allied powers, Britain, United States, and Soviet Russia. He wanted to drive a wedge between them. In truth, the allies already had a pretty clear idea of what had happened during the Katyn massacre. The Germans had held an international press conference on the site in 1943. They'd taken two American prisoners of war to act as witnesses, these men. Captain Donald B. Stewart and Colonel John Van Vliet would end up sending coded messages detailing what they'd seen to their superiors, giving evidence that strongly implicated the Soviets. In 1945, Van Vliet submitted a paper that definitively concluded the Soviets were responsible, but this report was destroyed by the Americans. The Polish government in exile were exasperated as they watched their Western allies gloss over the massacre, appeasing the Soviets rather than holding them responsible for the war crimes that they had certainly committed. It must have been, well, obviously tragic for the Polish government in exile based in London. Very awkward, if that's not too light a word, for people like Churchill, who were trying to hold together this grand alliance and now had something they had to answer to. I mean, how did Churchill handle this issue, for example? 
Churchill handled this issue the same way he handled most of the other so-called problems that the Polish government presented, mostly to do with Soviet atrocities being committed on their territory, which is that he tried to ignore them. He tried to push the Poles aside. He tried to change the subject. He never wanted, again, to discuss their eastern border. He wanted them to keep that border. He eventually invented a formula. He and Stalin together invented a formula whereby Poland would acquire new western territories in order to compensate for its eastern territory. So actually the borders of modern Poland were created by Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin at the end of the Second World War. They weren't borders Poland had ever existed in before. He perceived the Poles as a problem because they were a problem precisely for the alliance with the Soviet Union. They constantly kept pointing out that there were ways in which what the Soviet Union did was parallel or similar to what the Germans were doing, that the level of atrocities on Soviet-occupied territory was also very high. And those were awkward facts for the rest of the alliance, at least during the war. I suppose it's important to point out that almost immediately after the war, I mean, really, even before it had formally ended, the Soviet occupations of Poland and the rest of Central Europe were already becoming a problem for the Allies. And the origins of the Cold War really lie in the immediate understanding, and as I said, in the spring of 1945, that the Soviets were going to occupy Central Europe and carry out deportations and mass arrests, and even in some cases, mass murder on those territories. And this immediately became a problem for the Allies. But Churchill, during the war, didn't really want to hear about it. How did Stalin respond to these uh, claims, this evidence presented by the Germans of discovering these massacres? Stalin absolutely denied it. He blamed the Germans. He said the Germans had carried out the massacres. And this lie was perpetuated by the Soviet Union, by every subsequent Soviet leader, right up until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. The first Russian leader to formally acknowledge that the Katyn massacres had been carried out by the Soviet leadership was Boris Yeltsin, many, many years later. And I suppose then during the war, the Western allies had no choice but to kind of pay lip service to this fiction? It was a difficult relationship, especially between the American Britain and the Soviet Union and later others who were part of that alliance as well. But there are things that happen that are less than forgivable. I mean, the British didn't want to acknowledge the reality of the Katyn massacre until much later. They didn't want to include Poles in some of the original victory celebrations at the end of the war, the Polish government in exile. The truth of what had happened became very difficult for everybody. Anne explained to me that far from being a distant and settled part of history, the Katyn massacre remains emotional and divisive within Poland today. Most difficult of all, of course, for the Poles, who had to live for many years with these so-called blank spots in their history, with pieces of their history that they knew were false, that were perpetuated by the Soviet government, but also by the Polish communist leadership. You could also say that in a way that history, you know, history took its revenge on the communist parties of Central and Eastern Europe, because one of the reasons that communism fell apart at the very end, and one of the reasons why it failed to be successful in Poland was that, you know, Polish school children knew the truth. And Conversations about the about the Katyn massacre were had inside Polish families. People knew the government lied about it. They knew the Soviet Union had lied about it. So it was the truth about history was one of the elements that discredited the Soviet occupation and the communist leadership. So in a way, the story kept being part of Polish history till the very end of the occupation. And in some ways, it still continues. Putin's 
acknowledgement of the Katyn massacre, which did happen also, incidentally, in 2010. He made a, a kind of pilgrimage to the, to the burial site together with the then prime minister of Poland, was considered at that time a sign that Putin was more open to the West and more open to a different kind of relationship with Poland. Later on, as the Russians turned away and went in a different direction with their history politics, that idea was dropped. But it continues to be a piece of conversation or a piece of debate or a, an ongoing problem between Poland and Russia to this day. Presumably Putin personally has moved away from that position of rapprochement, has he? I mean, do the Russians mention it today and do they continue to acknowledge it or have they moved back to a place of denial? I haven't heard them speak about it recently. I mean, their current interest is in making up fake history about Ukraine. And so they seem to have laid off Poland just for the moment. Um, but as I said, it, it's a kind of ongoing thorn in the side. In a way, this fear that Russia will come back or that those massacres might repeat themselves or that there's continued nefarious Russian meddling in Poland continues today. For over 50 years, the Soviet government refused to admit responsibility for the massacre. Their efforts to obscure the truth were complicated when a note from Stalin to Nikita Khrushchev came to light. It outlined in detail the execution of nearly 22,000 Poles and proposed the destruction of the relevant files. By the 1980s, pressure had increased on the Soviet government to release documents that proved their responsibility for the killings. This culminated in 1990 when Mikhail Gorbachev publicly admitted that the NKVD were culprits. Putin also once attended a memorial service for the massacre back in 2010, different times, alongside the then president of Poland. But you might well feel that this was too little too late. And the Katyn massacre remains unresolved in the minds of many Poles. What do you see are the important lessons of Katyn and the resonances given the last year or well, longer Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I think it's important to understand what Russia's intentions are when it occupies territory. You know, Katyn was an early version, as I say, of what's happening now. You know, what happens when Russia came into the lands north of Kiev, to Bucha and to Irpin, the suburbs really, just in the north of the city? What happened when they came into eastern Ukraine, into Kherson province? Actually, what happened when they came into Crimea in 2014? They carry out the same playbook. They have lists of names. They search for leaders. They arrest mayors. They arrest leaders of local charities and volunteer organizations. They treat with suspicion any kind of spontaneous action or activity. They look for the most active and the most public members of society. They try to eliminate them. They kill them. They murder them. They deport them. In some cases, they just disappear them. We have many disappeared mayors, actually, from eastern Ukraine. We don't actually even know where they are right now, in an attempt to subjugate and subdue society. So what we saw in Poland, in eastern Poland in 1939, what we saw again in Poland, in Hungary, in the Baltic states after 1945, what we saw in Crimea in 2014, what we are seeing now in the territories of eastern Ukraine is a kind of NKVD, KGB, FSB playbook. So the secret services going back to the 1930s to the present have had the same attitude to occupied lands and occupied territories. That's, of course, important to understand because it's also an explanation as to why the Ukrainians are fighting so hard. They know these old tactics. They know the history of Katyn. They know the history of the suppression of Eastern Europe and of the suppression actually of their own country, Ukraine, in the 1930s and later on. 
And so when we talk about in, you know, in London or, or Washington, when we talk about, oh, this piece of territory or that piece of territory or this piece of land or that piece of land, the Ukrainians understand that what we're talking about is areas where people are going to be murdered, suppressed, arrested, tortured, just as they were in the past. So occupation for the Russians and for their Soviet predecessors means destruction. It means arrests. It means elimination of the nature of the society that they find. And so in that sense, there is a continuity between the Soviet past and the Russian present. Tell us, you've just come back from Ukraine. Is there anything you're able to share? You met with Zelensky. Is there anything you're able to share? There are many things that I could share. You know, one of them, as I've just said, is that the Ukrainian determination to win, not just for the sake of a few square kilometers of land, it's not about the earth, you know, or the dirt or the farming area. It's about the people who live in those places and their belief that all of them have to be rescued. The Ukrainians believe that they have different, better ways of fighting. Um, I think you might see some of those or an attempt to see some of those different ways of fighting in the next two or three months. They're very sanguine about what really needs to happen, though, for the war to end. You know, for the war to end, there has to be a change inside Russia. And so it has to be a little bit like, for example, the experience that the French went through when they decided to abandon Algeria. There has to be a moment when the Russians say, this wasn't worth it. This war was a mistake. We are no longer interested in colonizing other territories. This old Soviet playbook that we've used in the past so many different times doesn't work in the present. There are too many ways to push back against it. And that's the change they're hoping to create through fighting. Whether that can happen in the next few months or in the next year, I don't know. But that's their intention. They would like to keep fighting so that Russia experiences a defeat, so that the kind of terror they were able to inflict on Poland in 1939 can't be repeated anywhere else. From what you've seen, has the Russian policy of trying to destroy Ukrainian identity by disappearing these mayors, these dynamic, important members of the community in the east of the country, has that backfired? Because Ukraine seems, from what we all read out in the West, more united and more aware of its separate identity and separate path from Russia than in the last 20 or 30 years. That's absolutely true. In that sense, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had precisely the opposite effect of what Putin believed it would have. Namely, it's reminded Ukrainians that they are different, that they don't want to be part of this totalitarian society that Russia is becoming. They want their open society. They want their grassroots politics and their kind of bottom-up way of organizing themselves. They want a more open society. They want to live differently. And that has become the definition of Ukrainianness. So Ukrainianness is not about speaking Ukrainian or being an ethnic Ukrainian, whatever that means. I mean, these are hard things to determine in that part of the world. It's about wanting to be part of that kind of society. Just one little anecdote, I was in Odessa, which famously is a Russian-speaking city. It was founded in the era of Catherine the Great. It was a kind of Russian imperial project for a long time, and it always had a slightly separate status, both within the Soviet Union and then later inside Ukraine. And we met with the Russian-speaking mayor of Odessa, and he is fervently devoted to the cause of independent Ukraine, as are the rest of Russian-speaking Odessans, because they now identify themselves as being part of that kind of society, 
they would call it a European world, a democratic world, an open world, and not of the Russian world. So Putin has really succeeded in consolidating a country that, like every European country, has different regions that have different histories and have had been part of different empires. It's very normal, as I said, in European history. But he has really consolidated Ukrainians and made them feel that their definition of who they are is really based around a set of ideas. It's not an ethnicity. It's not just a language. It's about this idea of Ukrainianness, which they identify now as being very different from that of Russia. Anne Applebaum, thank you so much for coming on and giving us your insights into history and the present and the future of that part of Europe as ever. It's a huge honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited. Although it took place over 80 years ago, the Katyn massacre still lies at the heart of Poland and Russia's relationship. It's hard to think about what the legacy of the massacre is. I suppose one legacy is that despite the desire of authoritarian regimes to use appalling violence to achieve their ends, often it doesn't work. It actually makes opposition more likely in the long term. In the case of Poland, it has strengthened Polish nationalism and attachment to their liberty and freedom from the influence of their eastern neighbour. Far from eradicating Polish national identity and ethnicity, Poland now is one of the most nationalist governments in Europe. And Poles are animated with a profound sense of patriotism. But authoritarians never seem to learn these lessons. As Anne pointed out, Putin's invasion of Russia has proven that. By trying to crush Ukrainian independence, he has galvanized the Ukrainian people. He has reinforced the fact that they are different from their Russian neighbors. And he's helped to create a set of values around which they can rally. I think there's no doubt that as more evidence of Russian war crimes in Ukraine come to light, they will have a similar effect to those of the Katyn massacre. Their legacy will last for decades. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout. <laughs>